do me a favor and turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. Well, God bless you guys. You are coming through a lot of material. Uh, you have been sticking it out. I think this is the, you know, the 16th week or so we did, uh, you know, and plus we went on vacation. So you have uh, really been sticking this out and uh, hopefully, you know, we're giving you a framework with which, within which you can cre- uh, make this a lifelong study until the Lord comes back uh, of, of this book and uh, how beautiful it is. It's the book that tells you if you'll listen to it, you'll listen to the words, you'll read it, you'll be blessed. It's the only book in the Bible, I think, that says that. This is a really interesting thing. Uh, the enemy of our souls, folks, is, a, is, a, is an imitator. There's nothing uh, he can create. He imitates the Lord, Jesus Christ. And one of the ways in which you could describe one of the themes of the Bible, there's several things you could do. I always say one of the great themes of the New Testament that a lot of, not a lot of people uh, talk about is just stick with it. We'll really stick with him. <laughs> That's one of the themes of the Old or the New Testament, but uh, and and one of the uh, amazing themes of the Bible for me, uh, I'm just marvel at is how upside down in the right way we are from the world. Like the world says, prop yourself up. The Lord says, die to self. The Lord says, you know, the world says, if you want to be great, make yourself known, make yourself famous, make yourself popular, make yourself powerful, make yourself rich. Uh, the Lord says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, be a servant a slave. You want to find life? We'll lose yours. Those aren't the things that I was taught when I was being uh, reared or growing up, Uh, but that's the American way, and the Bible is um, so amazing uh, with that. And here tonight, we're going to find something that's uh, diametrically opposed to one another, and that's this theme that goes throughout the Bible. There's, uh, in a sense, there's two ladies <laughs> that the Bible is talking about all throughout it. One is the bride of Christ, and one is the harlot of Babylon. One is Jerusalem, one is Babylon. One is this holy city, this heavenly city, and the other is this city that is worldly wise or of the world, and uh, uh, you see it right from the get-go, right from the beginning of the Bible, right in, uh, um, you know, the book of Genesis. In fact, turn with me to Genesis 10. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. (laughs) Now, even I can figure this out. 10 is after 7. Ten comes after seven, and seven is when the great flood happens. Remember the great flood? Of course you do. You remember the great flood. Noah's descendants God's co- are, are explained in God's covenant with creation, and then God blesses in chapter 9 Noah's and his sons, and the nations descend from Noah. And in chapter, or chapter 10, verse 10, 10, 10, actually, let's go to 9. Actually, let's go to 8. Cush begets Nimrod. Don't you love that name? (laughs) Anyway, that's a different thing I shouldn't talk about probably. But anyway, Cush begets Nimrod, and he begins to uh, be a mighty one on the earth. And he was a mighty hunter. And there is some indication, if you study this, that he was a hunter for souls. He was bloodthirsty. 
He was a hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like, the, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was, here you go, here you go. Look, Babel, Erok, Akkad, and Kauna, and where is it? In the land of Shinar. And where is the land of Shinar? Babylon. Go down with me to chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. You talk about imitation, man. Look at this. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Where's Shinar? Babylon. And they dwelt there, and then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, by the way, Go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. It's called Babel, right? You know what Babel means? Confusion. We even use the word now when people babble. It's confusing. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, if you follow the history of Babel in Babylon, uh, Nimrod's wife was very integral uh, in um, spreading this uh, a pagan religion that uh, grew up out of this city. And one of the things that they did was build huge mounds, something called a ziggurat, a ziggurat of bricks, and they've discovered ancient ones of these at Iraq. I just mentioned it to you or read it to you. A place that's actually mentioned here in Genesis. They found one of these ziggurats, these sun-dried bricks made up to the heaven. Why do you think that is? What does it represent? What does it represent when you see these sun-dried bricks made up to the heaven? It means we can get to God. You see it? Men can get to God without the Lord, <laughs> on our own. What do you think works-based religion is, folks, that permeates the churches of the world? Oh, man, if I can just be good little boy or good little girl, I'll be able to get to heaven. I mean, just ask the majority of people in the United States, are you going to heaven? I say it all the time, but it's so true. They're going to go like this. They literally do this. Like balancing on the scale. Well, I don't know. I'm a little bit better than you know. I mean, I'm not as bad as Stalin was and, uh, you know, those serial murder murderers. I'm better. And they do this. And what they're saying to you is the same thing that they were saying in Babel. If we're good enough, we can get to heaven. Of course, God is going to look down and he's going to judge between you and me or us and them, and the best ones are going to go. The problem is. <laughs> If I'm standing at the Dead Sea, looking at the constellations, and somebody's over in Hawaii, up on the volcanoes, looking at the constellations, they might be a little bit higher than I am, but they ain't anywhere close to the constellations, right? And that's the way it is with God. We can't make it to God. 
And in here in chapter 10 of the book of, Revela- or book of Genesis, we see that God creates a people to commune with him. They fall. They rebel. It starts to spiral out of control. God creates the flood, but in his grace, he saves a remnant. And immediately, the imitator comes up with a society that's going to be very worldly and very uh, 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 against God. It'll be a pagan religion that says uh, part of it, you know, they'll, they'll worship some deities, but the way in which they're going to get there is they're going to walk their way up and build their way up. Man, it doesn't sound too different than some of the churches you and I have been to. Okay, now put that away for a second. We're going to go back into... Chapter 17. Did I say 18 before? Okay, good. Chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. We'll read it a little bit. I'm going to pray. And we'll move through this. Well, it says this, and as we hear the word of the Lord, chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Hmm. Not pulling any punches, right? And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eight and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Man, that's a mouthful. My numbers are getting mixed up here. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, are called excuse me, chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Hmm. 
For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So let me pray because we need wisdom. (laughs) Well, Lord, thanks uh, for your word. Uh, You told us if we read it and hear it and take it in and live it, Lord, you'll bless us. And so we're just looking for that blessing as we worship and adore you uh, by studying your word and giving our hearts to you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, okay, so we have uh, the story of the two brides or the two, two women. There's the bride of Christ. You're it. He says he's going to present you faultless before the throne, folks. Why do you think the brides wear white and they walk up? It's the presentation to the husband. It's a picture of what's going to happen in reality in heaven, of how we're going to be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ, spotless and pure, washed by his blood. It's beautiful. Marriage is a beautiful gospel-shouting, attention-getting relationship to a world that doesn't know him. It's way more than just two people wanting to be happy and live a life and build a kingdom. It's not that. It's a place, it's an institution that God's made that shouts to the world the grace of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of that. God's not so much interested in your happiness through marriage, although he is. He's mostly interested in your holiness. So he brings two sinners, and he brings them together. Sharp stones that need to be fitted together. And oh, does that sharpening take place, right? Right. And it's not perfection in the human marriage. It's that place of still choosing and getting up and loving one another, even if you don't feel like it, and forgiving and exhorting and all the things that go into a marriage. That's beautiful. But what it's saying to the world is the gospel. But the world has taken that and said lots of things. Yeah, I I know, but I mean, you know, if we get into this thing and it doesn't work out, we'll just create things called like no-fault divorces. You know, it used to be you had to have fault with the other. (laughs) You had to have a reason to get divorced in the law in America. You had to have some sort of reason defined by statute, state by state. But then California came in and said, I think it was, uh, oh, it was two famous actors, and I'm going blank on their name, and they institute no-fault divorce. Basically, they just said, yeah, just because we want to. When, you know, in America, if she doesn't look as good as she used to or he doesn't look as good as she used to, or if I'm not as happy as I need to be, or she's not as happy as she needs to be, we could just march down to the courthouse and call it off. That's what the United States has chosen to do. That's what the world does. And we're going to see right here 
a great big contrast between the bride of Christ that's set apart and sanctified, washed in the water of the world, word by the blood, but also the word. What is a husband supposed to do? Husbands, wash your wife in the water of the word. That's what it says. And because of the blood of Christ, we can come faultless and we can meet our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in he's accomplished that we could be there and we're the bride of Christ. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And we're going to be integral here, even in this chapter, in this story. You're reading your story right now. The bride's story. It's here. It's now. These last chapters. But then you have this other lady, one of the seven angels. What are we talking about? Remember, we just got done with the seven bowl judgments. I mean, the earth is wrecked. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, you know, we don't know which one, but he came and talked with me, speaking of John now, John the Revelator. And he says to me, come, it's a, it's a command here. Come on, I want to show you the judgment of the great harlot. What is a harlot? You ever thought about that? One pastor uh, defines it this way. What a perfect way to define a harlot. One who offers sexual satisfaction but doesn't otherwise fulfill the role intended by God. Let me read that again. One who offers sexual satisfaction but doesn't otherwise uh, fulfill the role intended by God. Worship of God by someone who claims to honor him. A harlot. You think you, you hear what I'm saying? One of the angels came, and I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot. We've got to figure out who this harlot is. A harlot is one who offers satisfaction, but doesn't otherwise fulfill the role that God intended for them. There's this worship of God by someone who claims to honor him, but doesn't really honor him. You get it? And what we're going to see here is we're going to see grand manif manifestations of religion, of rituals, of edifices. Is that a word? This outward manifestation of religion with nothing inside a harlot who's taking advantage of uh, the grace of God in the religious world. That's what we're dealing with here. The great harlot, this prostitute who sits on many waters, has authority over many places in the world, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. In other words, kingdoms and kings interact with this great harlot, are seduced by the great harlot. This harlot has amazing amounts of influence over the world, sits on many waters, including in the high political places. That's who this is. The one who claims to worship God on the outside, but doesn't really. They have an ulterior motive. You see it? 
You see, you're going to be, be much better if you study chapter 17 and chapter 18, if you think of chapter 17 with respect to Babylon. I'm going to connect the dots hopefully here in a minute. In a spiritual way. It's, it's uh, commenting on what's going to happen at the end of uh, time, uh, during the seven-year period of tribulation, whoever Babylon and the great harlot is, what's going to happen in the religious world. That's chapter 17, okay? Everybody's straight with that? But chapter 18 is that same Babylon worldly system in the world of commerce and politics. So we're going to get to the commerce and politics, but today we're speaking of this worldly system that looks amazing, is going to lure a lot of people in, but is false and dead and rotting. You remember when Jesus said, you whitewashed tombs, and he was talking to the Pharisees. See, a person can be a whitewashed tomb. They can look beautiful on the outside, religious man. They can say all the right stuff. They can go to all the right places. They can give all the right money, etc., etc. And inside, nothing's happening. There's no life. And for a, a system, see, anything that's set up against God, even if it looks like it's for God, is false religion. It's a worldly sense of religion. It's a worldly sense with structures and relics and um, uh, 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 systems and money, but there's no life. Just go out on the Barna Group or any of the religious pollsters and look what's happening to the church in America. It, it's dying on the vine, folks. So, this great harlot, you could keep going. What, we're going to, as we go down through here, we're going to keep looking at some of her uh, 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 characteristics that are going to tell you who she really is, which is this false religious system. I've kind of let the cat out of the bag, but watch. This one who claims she worships God, but doesn't do so with a pure heart, sits on many waters, has big influence, even interacts with kings and commits fornication with them. They get, gets, uh, like we said, we would say, or in bed with them. That, you know, politicians are in bed with one another or something. That, that's kind of that, that thinking. And they make them drunk with wine of her fornication. There's this interaction in some way, somehow. Man, is this unbelievable what we've been going through last year? Somehow, some way, it deadens people to reality. See, that's what drinking does. It, 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 it takes you to that place where you, you know, you're like a veil over your eyes and you don't really know what reality is. Come on, for those of you who've done that before in your life, you know. And here, this interaction with false religion is going to anesthetize people. They're going to think they're okay, and they're not okay. You get it? What do we say when some people are drunk, beer muscles? Right? Okay, that's kind of the idea here. They're drunk with the wine of her fornication. By the way, just as an aside, if somebody's like this, what wakes them up? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
what wakes a person up? It's when the Holy Spirit comes and uses the Word of God in somebody's life and just, boom, brings them to life, you see. So what can we do? What can we do as people, as I look around, I watch the news and I feel like people are walking around in the United States like robots. They're blinded to follow this one or that one or whatever they say or whatever they do. And there's no critical, you know, there's no biblical thinking. There's nothing going on here. It's just a following, including Christians. And I say to myself, well, what wakes us up? It's the grace of God. I'm convinced it's the grace of God in your life that keeps you zealous, keeps you alive. It's obviously the Holy Spirit, but you get what I'm saying. So I'm saying, what do you do with somebody who's in a trance, so to speak, or who's drunk under false religion? You know what? Share the gospel of grace with them. When you find somebody that is in a system of religion that makes you feel guilty all the time, although in some senses, like I always say, agree with your adversary. I am guilty. <laughs> I mean, it's no, it's no secret. I am guilty, but that's the point. Start preaching the grace of God to them. Show them the scriptures of the grace of God. Here's what I love to do when somebody is in a, a system in which they feel guilty or they don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love to take them through a gospel, of course, and then the book of Romans. I love, it to, I love to ask people, yeah, what, what did you do to get imputed righteousness? Oh, nothing? right. Nothing. You just receive what the Lord had for you. So here, what I'm saying is this false religion can make people just like, you know, no nerves, no, I mean, just nothing, just desensitized, drunk, blind. Share with them the grace of God, the gospel, Jesus, the people who are even in the churches. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now, I got a whole sermon on that phrase right there. If you want to get away, listen, how, how do you think clearly about these things that we're going to talk to tonight? How do, you get, how do you think clearly about the evil in the world and the things that the enemy is doing and the darkness and the things that you see in people that are so dastardly and evil, you just, just makes you say, what do you do? Here's what you do. You know, I'm convinced this is what we should be doing in the last days. I'm convinced. You're going to say, oh, that's such a pastor, silly thing to say. I'm convinced we should spend more time with the Lord. We, look what he does. He carries him away in the spirit, John says, into the wilderness. He gets him away so that he can see clearly. When you're caught up with Fox News and MSNBC and blah, 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 and blah, 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 you get angry and mad and you can't see right. But what about if you get away with the Lord and his word and you're in prayer? That's why I think we, we should make a, a real push to start our day with the Lord, carries away in the Spirit, in the wilderness, in your prayer closet. I don't know where that is for you. Get alone. Get your phone the heck away from you. And just for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, just have the Word. Read the Word. Thank Him for the things that He's done. Confess sins. Adore Him. And then ask for what you need and for what other people need. And go and listen and listen for a while to what the Lord would speak to you. He will speak to you. And then you'll be set. You'll be strengthened for the day. And don't stop doing it. At lunch, when you take a walk or whatever you do, prayer walk and pray to the Lord. And then before you lay your head down at night, say prayers. 
and let's do this because the times are evil and time is short. And he goes into the wilderness, he's carried away into the spirit, and he sees a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, if you go back to chapter 13, 1 through 10, we won't do that. We know this scarlet beast is the Antichrist. And this one is full of names of blasphemy. What's, what's one of the ways in which you could blaspheme the Lord? Just one. There's a lot of ways. But one of the ways you could blaspheme the Lord is tell people you've got to be good to get to heaven. You know what you say when you say you've got to be good to get to heaven? You're, you're so blaspheming the Lord. You're saying that, you know, the sacrifice isn't good enough. You still have to measure up. Why am I saying that? This false religious system, see, knows nothing of the grace of God. Here he's sitting on a scarlet beast, and his name is full of blasphemies, having seven heads and ten horns. Well, this is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. You could go right back into chapter 13, and you would know it. Here, as she's sitting, the, or as the woman is sitting on the scarlet beast, notice the relationship. Notice the relationship. So, so there's several different views. Who is this Babylon that we're going to find out? Look, just go back with me to the last chapter again. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, there's two or three different views about what that's talking about. Is the great city Babylon itself? Babylon still hasn't been rebuilt. Remember, Saddam Hussein was trying to build it. Is it actually the city itself? Well, maybe. Many people believe that what this is talking about is an actual city that has to be rebuilt before the end times. But, of course, Babylon, through the entire Bible, when they speak of Babylon, Babylon, through the entire Bible, is speaking of that spiritual world system that sets itself, itself, sets itself up against the kingdom of God. So it could be that. Some people believe it's Rome. Rome. And of course, at this time, there's probably a sense in which John was writing that this great city that was set up against God was Rome. Yes, of course, because Rome was the city that dominated the whole world. Yes, of course. But in a deeper sense, this is probably saying that this Babylon is this spiritual system that's sparked by the Antichrist. Spark, that's not a good word. That's carried, there you go, by the Antichrist that sets itself up against God. And so that makes sense. When you go back here, you see, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Two views about that, by the way. Is the false religious system running the Antichrist at the beginning here of the tribulation period in the first three and a half years? Is the false religious system led by that false prophet that we studied last time, setting itself up and controlling the Antichrist. That's one view. The other view is this, is that the Antichrist puts himself in the background but is really running the false religious system. Two different views. A lot of people have different ideas about that. Whatever it is, we see that the woman here, who is the false religious system, is sitting on the scarlet beast. These two are interwoven. If you ask my personal opinion, I think that the... Uh, Antichrist is in the background allowing this uh, false religious system to run its course but is propping it up. But 
you, you be a Berean and think for yourself. Well, this beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, of course it was because the beast knows the end, <laughs> uh, was full of names having seven heads and ten horns. You remember, we talked about that. That's the exact description for the Antichrist. You can go back and look at that. And the woman, this is fascinating, the woman, if it, will you believe it's this Babylonian spiritual false religious system that is all throughout the world, not just in Babylon, but all throughout the world, and that sets itself up against God, if that woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, purple for ruling or kingship, scarlet for blood, maybe has killed, and we're going to see here in a little bit that this uh, false religious system is responsible for murder and killing of true church people or born-again Christians. We read it. We'll read it again. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Whatever this false uh, system is, it's very rich and very opulent. Hmm. And she has in her hand, having or, or, uh, this woman has in her hand a golden cup. In other words, it looks like it's divine, the cup, but it's not. It's fake. It's phony. It looks good. It's actually rich. I'll bet the buildings are fantastic and the things that we wear are fantastic, but, or that they wear are fantastic, but, but no life in there. In fact, there's a different agenda. And the agenda is, is that we're going to preach something that doesn't match up with the real gospel that was laid down once for all by the apostles. You get that? Folks, we see it now. Come on now. Every time, every year, we hear something from maybe a different religious system that we're all going to get together. We're all going to get together because we're all the same. Now, should we love one another? Does everybody deserve dignity and respect? Yes, but we can't yoke ourselves with people who don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the perfect Son of God, as the Son of Man and Son of God. We, we can't come together in unity, folks, with a system of religion that doesn't believe that he's the king of king and lord of lords. How could we do that? Oh, yes, could we be friends with the people who, yes, could we go have lunch with? Yes, but to yoke ourselves up to make a permanent relationship, uh, the church, with those who do not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Oh, man. And we hear these pronouncements. We're going to get together. All of us believe in the same God. Uh, we should stop fighting. We hear them almost yearly. And they're big pronouncements. They come from big-time religious people. But she's, she's interested in blasphemy. And she's interested in her precious clothes and her adornments. And she has in her hand a golden cup, and it's full of abominations. And that word is speaking of idols. 
And we got to be careful, folks, because there's a strain of Christianity that's involved, that we see a lot that says, if you'll just believe enough, you're going to have the best suits and best cars and the best houses and the best planes, and you're going to go to the best places, and you're never going to have a problem in the world. And if you do have a problem, or if you aren't rich, you, there's something wrong with your faith. And people become idols, or people start to make idols of themselves in religion. It's all about me and what I need and what I want. And I'm convinced that's a part of this. It looks like the golden cup, but in it we make idols, like idols of ourselves and riches. And we'll even yoke ourselves with others who uh, worship other gods just in the... Uh, uh, for the sake of saying we're unified. Does the Bible call us to unity among the brethren? Of course. Is it pleasant? Yes. Should we be doing that? Of course. And I think sometimes we're so scared to get out of our little building or a little denomination. Uh, this person worships different than I. He wears something different than I. And I, and I think we should be going and, and, and being friends and worshiping together with those who believe in Jesus as the Son who died and rose for our sins, of course. But I'm talking about when we come together with people who don't believe that and we make major pronouncements and we say we must be together. See, those are the, just the pangs of what's going to happen here in the tribulation period. We're moving towards it. It says this great woman or this woman, this awful woman, I guess, is arrayed in purple and scarlet, and she is adorned with all these stones. She has a golden cup full of, look, not full of the communion of the Lord, but she's got a golden cup full of abominations, idol or idols, and filthiness of her fornication, that interaction with uh, those other systems. And on her forehead, here's what's written. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. <laughs> and of the abominations of the earth. So you see here, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Whoever this false religious system is, and I think, listen folks, there's been Babylon in all of our generations. The system that's arrayed against the true church, but in the you're going to see here in a minute, in the tribulation, it's going to come uh, to a head. But throughout all of time, this woman, this false religious system, drunk with the blood, listen, of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ, just study the Spanish Inquisition. You have people going out, armies going out and saying, you worship our way or you die. Among the brothers and the sisters, you have many martyrs in Europe who wouldn't succumb to what the church said they must do or think or go through certain rituals. They would die at the stake for this. And there's many within the false church that have killed people who were born again saints. They were martyrs of Jesus. It says it right here. And then I when I saw her, 
This doesn't mean I marveled with great amazement like in admiration. This just means blown away. I couldn't believe it. But the angel said to me, well, why did you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Listen to this. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. You say, well, why did they say it like that? Because you know the story now. You know the story now. This one got mortally wounded. Remember, the beast got hit, got hit somehow, got killed, assassinated somehow, and then came back to life. That's earlier in the book of Revelation. You're starting to know the whole thing. He was, then he is not, and now he's going to ascend out of that bottomless pit. And if you remember, what was that bottomless pit? It was that place where the locusts came out of. Remember that? Those demonic locusts? The place of the devils or the demons? Well, this beast ascends from there, and then he goes to perdition. What's perdition for the the beast, the Antichrist? He's going to be chained in the lake of fire. (laughs) Remember that? And he's going to be let out for a time, and then he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. So you know, he knows the end of his story. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And that's just kind of a play on words because this book of life is a a big theme here. You want your name written in the book of life, right? In one place, it seems as if uh, the book of life is uh, uh, empty and then it gets written into. And in another place, it looks like all of us have been written into the book of life and uh, uh, some get uh, detracted out of there. I got to tell you, I don't know the answer for you, but I know this. I want to be found in the book of life. (laughs) But those who aren't in the book of life, they're going to know who this beast is. Oh, yes, they will. Well, here is the mind which has wisdom. In other words, what uh, the uh, writer is saying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this isn't something that is easily identifiable to people. Catch that. This isn't going to be something that's easily identifiable to a lot of people. Remember what's going to happen here in the sequence of events. We're in the church age. At any point now, the Lord could come back in the clouds and rapture his church. Thank goodness. Where will you be during this time that we're talking about? You'll be in heaven with the Lord. Right. And there's going to be inside the tribulation, 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists They're going to do their work. There's going to be angels flying through the sky. There's going to be witnesses at the wailing wall. There's going to be people who get saved inside the tribulation. Most of them are going to be beheaded or killed for their uh, uh, testimony of grace. I think some of them then will come through the tribulation and into the uh, thousand-year period, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ. But here's what I'm, here's, why did I bring that up? Because you must think about this. Here is the mind which has wisdom. In other words, think on this thing. You must think about this. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about this. Why are they saying this? What is this thing? It's telling you something about the beast, the Antichrist. What we think it's saying is the seven heads are seven mountains. Well, if you were reading this at the time of John, even now, really. But if you were reading at the time of John, Rome is called the uh, 
city of seven mountains or seven hills. So what we think is going to happen is that this Antichrist is going to come out of a Roman confederation, right? And he has some tie with that confederation. We'll talk about uh, uh, that it has a 10-member kind of cabinet or European Union-like thing. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's also seven kings, remember? Do you remember we talked about that? Why, why are there seven kings? Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. You read that and you're like, what? Well, remember, we talked about this. The characteristics of the Antichrist is that he's probably going to come out of some Roman confederation, have, have Roman influence, come out of a confederation, and There's also seven kings. Remember this? Egypt was one empire that was against the people of God. Remember that? And then you had, boy, if I get this right, oh my. Uh, Then you had, of course, Assyria. And then you had Babylon. And then you had the, oh, I'm going to get it right. Boy, I'm going to get it right. They all just came tumbling into my head. Then you you had the Medo-Persians and Cyrus. And then you have the Greeks, that's five. And at the time that John is writing this, who's in power? Rome. So read it again. There are also seven kings, five have fallen. The five empires. And the other one is not yet come, or the one is, that's this one. And the other one is not yet come, but when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eight and is of the seven. In other words, he comes up out of the revived Roman Empire. He's of the seven, the seven hills. You get it? And he's, uh, he's, he's going to make that seventh nation, and then it seems as if something's going to happen, and he's just going to take complete control of the world, eight. You get that? I hope you get that. Well, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So it seems like when that ten-nation confederation, the Antichrist sits on it, they're going to rule just for a little time, but then he's going to even turn on them, it seems like. And he's going to be the eighth. You get that? Remember what happens. I'm trying to give you the, the, the rapture happens. The tribulation begins. In the middle of the tribulation, what happens? He turns himself into this image in the temple and says, you worship me. And he commits the abomination of desolation. And many people believe these people, these countries or whatever, these uh, members of this uh, community, this covenant of 10 nations who is going to help him get up there, he's even going to turn on them and rule and reign and be have authority, uh, you know, uh, with them under his thumb. And that's what this is talking about, that they're just going to rule for a time. But how about this? Oh, somebody said, but. Those are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They'll hand it over, and he'll take it, and these will make war with the lamb. See, that's what the whole Bible's about. (laughs) You want to get in a great gospel conversation, Jim Seibel? Yes, Jim Seibel does. Have some, when somebody asks you, when somebody asks you, what's the Bible all about? Say, it's, oh, it's about a great war. And now you got them. Everybody likes to hear about war. What do you mean a great war? What are you talking about? Well, see, the Bible is a great war. It's this war between the goodness of God and the evil 
of the enemy. Now, don't think now, don't think that the enemy is the counterpart of God. He's not. He's underneath God. God's here. The enemy's here. He would be the counterpart of maybe like Michael or Gabriel or somebody, but he's not the counterpart of God. But what he wants to do is he wants to set himself up as God. He always has. He always will. And so what he does is he's the great imitator. He's even made, right, a false trinity, Satan himself, the beast, and the false prophet. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here he comes and he wants to engage all of these people to make war against the Lamb. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? They say Lamb. That's the whole Bible. He wants to drag as many souls into hell as he can because he knows where he's going. That's where we are right now. When you walk down the hallways of your school, when you walk down the hallways of your school, when you're walking in the highways and byways of life, when you're walking down the halls in a hospital, when you're, when you're at the soccer game, when you're there, listen to this. There's two types of people, people who are going to be with the Lord forever and those who are not. And the enemy doesn't want you to talk the gospel at the soccer game. The enemy doesn't want you to get up in the morning and pray for the person who you, he's going to do everything he can. He's not devil and horns with a pitchfork. Now, he's not going to appear to you there necessarily. What he's going to do is he's going to get you in those stupid little conversations that mean nothing because we're too embarrassed to speak of them. Oh, how's the weather? How are the Cubs doing? You know, pirates, man, so great. Oh, wow, yeah, hey, have a nice day. All the while, they're going right off to hell. And see, he's just making war. It's his whole strategy. And if he can get you and us to be effective, he thinks he can drag more people into hell. It's a war. Look at this, though. This one makes war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. See, it's, it's not even, he doesn't even give, he gives three words to it. It's not really even a big fight. He just overcomes them. <laughs> It's a done deal. That war is won. There's no, it's no competition. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and here you come. Is this beautiful or what? See, this is the message we need to take into the middle schools. This is the message we need to take to the high schools. This is the message we need for people who don't know where they're going, what they are, who they are. This is the message. This is the message. See, when you yoke yourself up with Jesus, what was that we sang up here? How did they say it in the words? Uh, the second song we sang, some, always we'll be uh, linked with Jesus somehow. Something, it was so beautiful, just as touching. You're completely yoked with Jesus, see? When you're in the middle of the tribulation, when you're in the middle of evil, when you're in the middle of the war, you just want to be with him, linked to him. Everything he is, you are. You have everything uh, he is, in other words. I said that wrong. You're not God, of course. But, but what I'm saying is everything he has, you have. So think about it. This is the message. We're yoked to Jesus even in the middle of this dastardly war. Why? Because we know we're called. <laughs> we know we're chosen. And we know we're faithful. And here's the thing about that. When we're faithless, he's faithful still. See, he, we get even his faithfulness imputed to us. We're called and chosen, folks. I mean, called and chosen. You, you ever been not chosen for something? Just think about that. 
Think about a time when you weren't picked, how bad you felt, how awful it was. Or how about when you, you, you get picked and somebody else doesn't get picked and you feel bad for that person. You're like, dude, will you pick them, please? Come on, let's go. You want them in the game, right? You want them. This word in the Greek means you were chosen by God. He chose you. It's his choice to bring you along. <laughs> See, that's the message we need to get to people. People are running around, even in the church. They don't think they matter. They think they're little nothings. And, and in one sense, we are nothing without Christ. And yet, he brings us into the family of God and makes us prince and princesses. <laughs> We're children of the king. Walk accordingly. He's chose us. He even says, many are called, but few are chosen. Isn't that interesting? We were, this word in the scriptures means we're divinely selected. What are we divinely selected to be? To be saints, it actually says in 1 Corinthians 1-2. It also says uh, we're chosen to be sanctified, set apart, and made holy for his purposes. That's Jude. And then we're faithful. We're trusting, we're believing, we're confiding. That's a beautiful one. I love that one. We're, we're faithful because we're confiding. What do you mean? Well, the only reason I'm faithful is because I just want to confide in the Lord. By the way, the psalm says he, he tells his secrets to those who fear him. You fear him. You've come to him. He actually reveals his secrets to you. Why am I telling you this? Because you're people who trust God's promises. You trust that he's risen from the dead. You've trusted that he's your Messiah, your king. And so now you're counted as faithful, you see. And, 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 and you get all the privileges, including, think of it, at the last days, whether you've ever been in the army or the military or not, you're with him in battle. And all he says, you, you, listen, folks, you don't even have to do anything. You get there and he just says, oh, at my word, it's over. That's what the Bible says. But you're part of it. You're part of it. You're part of it. Why would he make us part of it? He loves you that much. Well, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitude, nations, and tongues. This water, she has influence over the whole world. Organized religion has influence over the entire world. It doesn't matter. All kinds of peoples, all kinds of multitudes of nations and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw in the beast, listen to this, these will hate the harlot And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. This thing that he runs, this organization that he runs, is going to turn on organized religion and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
I, I firmly believe that's going to happen after the abomination of desolation. Remember, he's going to make a treaty at the beginning. Probably something's going to be involved where he allows the Jews to uh, build their temple. It's going to be an amazing peace pack. He's going to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes for uh, some time, and he's even going to sit back and watch false religion do their thing. Oh, the reason I told you that all those gospel... I, I lost my train of thought. Thing. It came back. The reason I told you that all those gospel-centered people in the middle of the tribulation are doing their thing, 144,000, uh, the people at the Wailing Wall, is because they're going to go, wow, something is religious. This looks like religion. And, and, and unfortunately, instead of having to run to the grace of God, there's going to be this false religious system, and they're going to gobble people up. Ugh. But here, midway through it, three and a half years in, he's going to do, uh, make the abomination of desolation, set himself up in the ten, uh, temple, and these ten horns, which you saw, these were going to hate the harlot. He's going to turn. He's going to make them turn and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. It's all going to turn. He's even going to turn on this, this system and wreck it so that they'll worship him. How about this? You say, wow, that's out of control. Well, is it? Because read the next verse. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. God is even using those entities for his purposes. Oh, my goodness. Can you hardly even believe? I can, it, it has to be one of the stunners of the whole Bible right there. What? Somehow, some way, in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, in God's direction, in his magnificence, in his majesty, in his bigness, God put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to turn and to wreck that. And now in the next chapter, the political and social, excuse me, political and economic system of Babylon, it's going to be judged too. That's amazing. God can use anything and anyone for his purposes. To be of one mind and give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That spiritual Babylon. What do you do when you read these things? What do you do when you hear this story? What do you do? I mean, I think what we do is we make sure that we're just, we, we live, listen folks, we live in evil times. Okay, we live in evil times. And you, as a professed believing Christian, the Bible says, are going to be made fun of, uh, going to be ostracized, going to be an outcast, in a sense, from this world. But see, that's okay, because this world sets itself up against the grace of God. But because of that, you're going to be, need strength and resource for the day. Whatever you do, wherever you go, it's not just a normal day. It's a day, listen to this, it's a day of battle. You, you know, you, you look at your calendar, you know, you ever done this? I've done this. Oh, man, good. I don't have anything on my calendar today. It's going to be a breeze. Whew, I'm totally missing the boat. I'm in a battle. I'm in a battle. What do we do? We start, we, we go to bed, we get up, we meet with the Lord. We get our marching orders. We get our directions. We derive resource and strength for today because we're heading out into our different beachheads for battle. God has 
chosen us, the weak things of the world, to confound the wise and to preach what? Not to preach goodness, getting up to God this way, but to preach Christ crucified, the grace of God. That's what we're to preach. And you can do it all day long in your workspaces and everything. Xander has a a great idea. Just grab a Calvary magazine or a Bible or anything. Just put it right there. Don't say anything on your desk if you're in an office. Just put it there. Don't say anything because people will ask. And if they ask, you're allowed to tell them. But when you're out and about, you're out at lunch. Pray about sharing the gospel with somebody, coming alongside with somebody. Here's what I'm thinking about as I read these, that this enemy wants to bring as many as he can. Just keep that drunkenness over their life and the veil over their eyes. And and the Lord wants to wake them up with the gospel of grace, and he uses us to do it. So let's pray. And as we pray, do this, would you please? Think about somebody that the Lord has been bringing into your life at school, at work, at extracurriculars. Think about somebody. And it doesn't have to be forced. Just be supernaturally natural with people. When they ask what you did on Wednesday night, tell them, oh, I went to church. What? You went to church. Why would you go to church? There you go. Just sprinkle things in there. Just bring up the Lord and they'll start asking questions and then give them the gospel and pray for them. Let's just be this little, mighty, little, peewee, little army for the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord, this is serious business. People are dying, Lord. And Lord, make it a burden of our hearts, would you please? Make it a burden of our hearts for the souls of men and women, boys and girls that we come in contact with, the ones you direct us to, Lord. Just direct us to people that you've prepared the hearts of. Help us to walk through the doors that you open and share the gospel, your good news. Help people to be built up in your word. Help us to disciple people and to baptize them. Lord, we need you in all these ways because it's not really us who does it. It's all you, Lord. But Lord, we can say, nah, I don't want to be sent, or we can say, send us, send me. Lord, I think we got a lot of people that want to go. So help us this week and always, in Jesus' name, amen.